0: Thanks to Stephen and the worship team for leading us, and, uh, and Stephen, thanks for your labors as you put the pieces of the service together. Uh, he takes uh, the threads I give him uh, some weeks a lot way in advance and some weeks a little later, and uh, the Colossians passage was uh, just such a fit uh, to what we're talking about this morning uh, as we go to Genesis uh, chapter 45. But before we... Dig into God's word, let's talk with him. You are the father of fathers, the only creator. There is none like you. We bow to worship, and we worship especially because of how you have made yourself known in your son and in his cross and the glory that shines from that cross. Open our eyes and ears. Give us the ears of disciples. Draw us anew to you for the first time or again and again, closer and closer. And draw us to one another as your church. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 45. Uh, I want us to look this morning, as I've titled it, uh, Insights into image-bearing, we've been looking at how God has been changing Jacob's family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the three patriarchs, this section of Genesis beginning in chapter 37, uh, the generations that flow from Jacob, and uh, a family that had become a real mess and had not been good image-bearers where they were. But even as we who are in Christ are being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ by the Spirit and the Word, uh, the Spirit was at work in Jacob and Jacob's family. And I want you to think about image bearing just a bit as we begin. Uh, Some of you have read books, heard people talk about uh, the doctrine of what it means that we uh, uh, are made in God's image, that there at the beginning of Genesis, sometimes I think we forget something when we talk about that. We talk about it in the abstract and the theoretical, uh, doctrinal, and we don't think about the fact that image bearing changed radically with our rebellion in Adam in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve were not the same after the rebellion, after the fall. And image bearing uh, changes in a new and radical way with the cross which is the center of everything. That the glory of God shines uniquely and greatest, all glory given uh, to the Son and in his incarnation, uh, and shines brightest from the cross. So I want you to think about that this morning, that image-bearing changed radically after our rebellion in the garden and the incarnate Son of God's death on the cross. And so success is redefined. Uh, We lead out of weakness rather than strength because the cross shows us our absolute weakness without being born again by the Spirit of God and God's glory and Christ's glory on the cross. Uh, You know, Adam and Eve, the first parents, co workers with God in tending the garden. in spreading worship, they were to multiply and fill the earth and uh, fill the, the earth with worshipers. Uh, John Piper as well said that uh, a mission exists because worship doesn't. Uh, that if God were worshiped and the earth and was full of his glory and in worship as the creation itself shows his glory, uh, uh, there wouldn't be a need for what we do in uh, spreading the gospel. But the need Uh, is there. But Adam and Eve's rebellion, their distrust of God, uh, their removal from the garden, the growing violence, the death that came, uh, uh, broke things up in a horrible way. And there was a need uh, to lead in different ways. And I wish we had uh, time for a whole survey, but I decided it didn't fit uh, where we are in this series and looking at God's providence. But There is a wonderful thing that happens as God replaces Abel, who was killed by Cain, uh, and through Seth, who is the replacement, Adam through Seth. uh, Does anybody know who the seventh from Adam, counting Adam, as the first is through Seth? It's Enoch, who walked with God. Uh, That's not an accident. And the seventh from Adam through Cain... uh, is the evil Lamech who spread violence on the earth. And you have the division of humanity into uh, what Augustine called the city of man through Lamech, the line of the flesh, contrasted with through Seth, those who walked with God, who are the city of God, the people of God who live by the Spirit, which is why I love that Colossians passage so much. It says that we who are the church are in the line of Seth, the line of the Spirit through which God brings Messiah. Image bearing. Uh, We know a lot about it, we just don't think a lot about it. Uh, When we get to heaven, I will introduce you to a brother that uh, I miss, and it's hard for me to talk about him without uh, starting to weep. John Lekwongo is his name. Uh, He only, uh, out of his home area in eastern Uganda successfully planted about 150 to 200 churches in Uganda, Kenya, and Rwanda, and some other places. Uh, Pastors who uh, uh, pastored small bush churches to pastors who had master's degrees, were majors and above in the Ugandan army, uh, were attorneys, uh, people from different denominations. Uh, One of the joys of my life was to spend uh, six different three-week trips uh, laboring with him in Uganda. Uh, He knew all about image-bearing because he had seen Idi Amin, the awful dictator, uh, king, uh, uh, what was the film, uh, The Last King of Scotland, uh, uh, a term that Idi Amin uh, named for himself, a violent man, and like many leaders in every public building and square in Uganda, uh, there were pictures or statues of the face of Idi Amin to remind you that he was omnipresent. And not only through those pictures, but through his soldiers who showed up in the middle of the night and people disappeared and many died. And my friend John and his brother got word that the army was coming for him and his brother by name the next day. And they fled. Uh, And those images, the picture and the soldiers, showed what Idi Amin was like. As image bearers, knowing the rebellion that is in our bloodlined by the flesh from the garden and knowing our need of the cross, uh, we are to bear Christ's image in a very different way. And this morning we look at how Jacob and his generations, his sons and those who came after him are changed into more contrite and humbler image bearers. We look at how Joseph, who is a forerunner of Moses, remember when Moses had to make the choice, did he identify with the Hebrews? Or did he identify with the Egyptians? But he wasn't the first one to do that. Uh, in the midst of the chapter that we're going to read through in just a moment, we find uh, that Joseph had to make a decision. And he tossed all the Egyptians out of the room when he finally said, I am Joseph, your brother. And his heart of hearts was poured out anew to these brothers from whom he had been estranged and he re-identified with his Hebrew family making secondary the glories of Egypt. Uh, Look at the first uh, 15 verses with me of this chapter. We're just going to quickly read through it and then we'll talk about it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Pause for one moment. If you weren't here two weeks ago, uh, or if you haven't read over these chapters, remember what happened in chapter 44. Judah offers himself as the replacement to Jacob to get his father uh, to uh, let Benjamin go with them, which Joseph has demanded. Uh, He says, my reputation, my life, everything that I am before you, I give to you as a substitute because we must in order to live and get bread We must take Benjamin with us. This is what Joseph has said. But now when Joseph sees this heart for his father in Judah, who had been one of the ones that got him sold to the slave traders, and he sees his love for the father, the heart of the son being turned to the father, his own heart, instead of rejecting his background and living in the glory of his power in Egypt, his heart is broken And he can't contain it any longer. And so he cried, make everyone, all the Egyptians, go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Verse 2. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The first words out of his mouth when he identifies himself are about his father. Whom he had forgotten. Look up the meaning of Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons that he had in Egypt, the meaning of those names. He had put his past behind him, but in his heart it's still there, and his heart is turned towards his father. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. No wonder. He's second in command of Egypt. He's not just this powerful man, but he's the brother they sinned against. And now they find out that he's not only still alive, but their lives are in his hand. They were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That's not what they expected him to say. But he says, don't be afraid, even though you did that, and I know it, and you know it. Don't be afraid, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, uh, an advisor like a father gives advice to his children. He's in a position that is incredibly influential. He's telling them to tell his father, even if you don't believe the other brothers, believe Benjamin. Benjamin knows that he and I who share the same mother, he has seen me. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And when that was done, the first part of verse 15, and he, Joseph, kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. We're renewed as image bearers as our hearts turn with tenderness and forgiveness, even towards those and maybe especially towards those who've wounded us. After the cross, if we are the image bearers of God and his son, we are mostly, most of all, image bearers when our hearts turn in tenderness and forgiveness to the very people that have wounded us. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Anybody can love their friends. But if you're transformed into my image, you will learn to love out of my life, not yours, to have this kind of reality. It's Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We turn in forgiveness to our family and ultimately to the family of Christ. We become tender even towards those who've wounded us. Sternberg, a commentator, writes, Judas so feels for his father that he begs to sacrifice himself for a brother more loved than himself. Did you catch that? Judah in chapter 44 is willing to give up his reputation for a brother that the father has shown favoritism to. Whoa, that's a 180 from where we were back in chapter 37. Joseph's restraint is broken by such family love by Judah. Joseph now sends his Egyptian staff apart so that he can identify with them. Joseph's heart is turned to his father and his brother's his affections turn away from resentment for their abuse and turn towards God, who can use all things for good. Isn't that amazing? That all of a sudden he looks at all that he suffered for years, that it was God's hand that allowed them to do that to him. Remember the book of Acts when the apostles preached the gospel that, uh, uh, that his fellow, uh, the apostles' fellow, Jews had done nothing but what God himself had allowed in crucifying Jesus because God was at work to bring good from evil. Joseph worships God for what he has done and he walks away from the temptation to bitterness as he takes all of God's providence in his life as from the hand of God. Well, that's the challenge this morning, isn't it, that I lay before myself and you. That we look at all the hard things in our life, even though we don't know the outcome yet. And, and we look at what we've learned from that. I was reading a commentator, uh, won't take the time to name him, but I've learned something I didn't know. That uh, in the middle of a sterling career of publishing and scholarship, uh, his wife became so infirm that she could not even speak. And one of his major jobs was to take care of her. And he talked about that as he commented on this passage. That God's providence in his life brought him to a place where he could give thanks even for that. And there was a sweetness to his relationship with his wife in her limitation that he had never known before as she was still able in some ways to communicate. He becomes tender towards brothers who had wounded him. I don't know if I can get through telling you this story, but I'm going to risk it. Can't reveal too much, but I was involved pastorally a number of years ago with uh, a fellow TE's family, and it was one of the worst breakups of a family and a marriage I have ever seen. Uh, If I told you all the things that this dear brother, whom God was greatly using, did, uh, taking a close friend of the family and involving her in an affair with him, having taken her on vacation with the family and had her as a single woman take care of the kids, betraying professional and family relationships. It was awful. Ultimately, two church sessions were involved with it. And I hope when I'm done in just a minute or two, because I can only give you the shortest version, uh, that you will when you hear the word church discipline, think, what a wonderful sweet word. Because when We and the other church got through, and the the presbytery got through with that process. The sister church, where the wife, who later really was forced to, by his choices, divorce her husband, and the woman that had been led and deceived into this adulterous relationship were both members of that church, and this young woman, who had been so led astray, uh, had been Removed from the table, coming to the Lord's table for a time by the session as she pondered how to deal with her life in the middle of the mess. A time came, and they didn't always do communion this way, but they had uh, sometimes different four or five different stations where elders in pairs had the bread and uh, the cups and trays. And people would come up in groups, sometimes families, two or three families together, and receive uh, the supper there uh, in that fellowship of 10 or 15 around. And most of the church had no idea what was going on, but probably 20% knew what had happened with this family and knew that the young woman who went up holding the wife's hand was the woman who had betrayed her and she wanted to take her to the table for the first time to have the Lord's Supper with the older children with them. Because the Spirit of God had so worked in her life and in this younger woman's life that their sisterhood in Christ was more valuable to them than all the hurt. That's the church. It's not easy, it stings and it hurts. But when the world sees that kind of thing, they say that didn't come from the earth, that didn't come from the flesh. Maybe the Spirit of God is really amongst us. Secondly, we're renewed as image bearers as we begin to face our sin and and let God hug us even through those we've resented and hurt. Uh, You may have noticed that I didn't read the second half of verse 15. I ended with the first half, and Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Uh, Do you note that uh, the text doesn't say, and they wept on his shoulder second half of verse 15 simply says after that his brothers talked with him that was a big step because if you go back to Genesis 37 you find out that they resented him and they hated him and the minute they saw him coming to him to them sent by the father they were planning how to get rid of him and now they're afraid of him but they see something of the grace of God in him and they're ready to talk they're ready to converse they're ready to listen they're becoming a family again because the gospel turns the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers and turns brothers back to one another in their hearts i could not help think of john 17 The Lord's high priestly prayer, the real Lord's prayer, some would say, where Jesus uh, says so many things, but in verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them, the disciples, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And when the brothers begin to face their sin and are humbled and begin to allow God to hug them and weep over them with delight through Joseph. I mean, think about this. The one who was hurt is the one who took the first step. That's the gospel. God is the one who was offended, and God is the one who took the first step, the giant step from heaven to earth in the incarnation. And we as his children are often the ones who have to take the first step. With the people that we're offended by, by what they've done. I ask you to apply that at UPC. If there are tensions between you and other brothers, don't wait for them. Take the first step, live the gospel out. Derek Kidner writes, At first sight, the rough handling of Joseph, of his brothers, has the look of vengefulness, but nothing could be further from the truth. Behind the harsh pose was a deep, almost uncontrollable affection seen in Joseph's continually running out of the room to weep in previous chapters. And after the ordeal is over, there is nothing but overwhelming kindness and tenderness. Joseph's enigmatic treatment of them was a kinder and a more searching test. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the grown and new attitudes of his brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. They begin to talk and to listen to the brother whom with resentment they had scorned. Genesis 37, 4, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him at all and now they're talking again because of these foreshadowings of the gospel. And in chapter 45, verse 24, we're not there yet, but let me read it. Then Joseph sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. The word could also be translated, Do not tremble on the way. Don't fear what the future might bring, and not go get Jacob and bring the family and the grandchildren back. Don't run away and be afraid of what I'm going to do to you and who's going to get the worst treatment. And next week in Genesis chapter 50, we'll see more of that reality. Joseph knows that transformation isn't quick and immediate, so he warns them not to let fear and trembling get in their way as they ponder the future. It's fear of, of what might come. Some of you, as we uh, are uh, in this process of moving towards the congregation, electing a committee uh, for a pastoral search, are fearful of the future. Different ones of you are fearful in different ways. I've been here long enough. There's more that I don't know than I know. Uh, But life tells me, and what I've already learned, tells me that different ones of you have heard different slices of stories from different individuals and have got different viewpoints on what went on. And some of you don't have a clue what went on. And that's okay. But in all of that, there's this reality of realizing that God's hand is in it all, even in our brokenness. I read something Tim Challies wrote uh, back in 2016. He called it the cracks begin at the bottom using a a high-rise expensive tower, one of the most expensive in San Francisco. And he says, Great ruptures in the church often begin with just one member gossiping about another or just two quarreling members who have no desire to pursue reconciliation. Great divisions often begin with a clique that refuses to integrate with the rest of the congregation or with a small group of people who make a disputable matter into a matter of spiritual life and death. Sometimes it's one person who asks questions meant to cause others to doubt the good intentions of the pastor's. The greatest rifts can have their genesis in even the most innocuous words or actions. But if that is true, so is the opposite. You have the ability to promote and maintain unity in your church. And your task as a member is not only to avoid disunity, but actively to pursue unity. Old Testament and New Testament, Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There is a relationship between eternal life, the pouring out of the Spirit in the new birth, and our unity the new testament says a lot more about it thirdly and finally we're renewed as image bearers uh, as we renew our trust in god's covenant promises we renew our trust in god's promises jacob is renewed as an image bearer as he takes another step of walking by faith jacob had just about given up he's the patriarch where's he been is he the hero so far Not if you know the story and have been paying attention. But he begins to pay attention as he hears that Joseph is still alive and begins to trust anew that God's covenant promises to and through him are not going unfulfilled. Verse 25 of chapter 45. So they went up out of Egypt, the brothers, and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit, the ruach, the breath in him that only God gives, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And we're not going to spend time in chapter 46, but let me just give you verses 2 through 4 of the next chapter. And God spoke to Israel, to Jacob, in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Brothers and sisters, this chapter is not just about and this section of chapters is not just about Joseph being saved from the pit, the slave traders, the prison. It's not just about Jacob's family being delivered from division and famine and destruction, but even more so it's about God saving his covenant people who will bless the nations now through Joseph, Egypt, and the famine. But ultimately through Messiah, Judah's greater son, All the nations of the earth will be blessed, and our renewed trust in God's promises in Christ is part of our image-bearing. After Adam's Garden of Eden rebellion, it has a different look, and Jesus' death and judgment on the first creation and life according to the flesh, and his blessing of the new creation, new life of the Spirit, is all about our becoming theologians of the cross, Uh, I wish I had more time. I don't. Uh, we need to finish within about five minutes here. Uh, this is uh, All Hallows' Eve. We had a wonderful day yesterday. I wish uh, if you weren't by with uh, several hundred kids and families, some, uh, Murnel was doing registration, uh, just saw the blow-ups and the kids just turned in the driveway <laughs> and came in and, and walked in, and we trust uh, we're loved on uh in a great event that you all helped put on. Uh, But it's also uh, not just All Hallows' Eve, it is Reformation Sunday today. And Martin Luther had so many insights. We know about 1517 and the 95 Theses, but few of us know about 1518 and the Heidelberg Disputation, in which... Luther wrote one of the most amazing documents to distinguish between those who are theologians who learn to think according to the cross versus those of us. And you're a theologian, as R.C. Sproul wrote so well, whether you know it or not. The question is whether your theology is according to the revelation of God. But human beings, apart from the cross crushing our rebellious flesh, are theologians of glory. We want everything to be glorious. There's a danger right now in this church that some of you look back to the glory years as if everybody was mature because the church was bigger. Now, the church was bigger and a lot of good things were going on, but some of you weren't as mature then as you are now. And some of you will be more mature through the struggles than you've ever been if you apply the cross in your life. I can't say too much about the difference, but let me give you one passage to study later. Exodus 33. You know the passage in Exodus 33:18 18, where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, no. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'll show you all of my goodness. But isn't that interesting? Moses asked for glory, to see glory, to see God for who he is and God says, no, but I'll show you my goodness, and he covers him, and only when God has passed by does he let Moses peek out and see his hindquarters. That's all you get, the humility, and we see God's hindquarters on the cross where we see God's goodness. Aren't you thankful for the goodness of God in the cross? The most amazing glory of God is on the cross. That's success, the only success. We Americans have a tendency to think that going and blowing churches are where it's at. So many megachurches blowing up when the dictatorial, emotionally abusive styles of their pastors are come out and made public. In 2020, I interacted seriously, I've told the elders about it, serving as an interim pastor of a large PCA church, that had had 30 to 35 staff changes in the previous four and a half years, because of the mess that was going on at the top. I know of a young church plant that was doing really well until the young church planter got cancer and a lot of people left. What? Well, if God was really there, nobody would get cancer, right? What kind of stupidity is that? It's the stupidity that's in a lot of evangelical churches. They might have learned more about the cross and the glory of humility, walking with that church planner through his cancer, than they would ever learn with all the successes. God's providence always goes through the cross. I've got to end it. Closing story, and this one I probably will cry. When I was with Crewe in Boston, we had the first, and I think it may have ended up being the only uh, Christmas conference uh, between Christmas and New Year's that was held in New England at the hotel on campus at University of Massachusetts where my friend John Fitz was the campus director. Joe Webb was our area director and Joe had uh, turned uh, the conference over to John to plan and to run it. Uh, We had, uh, in addition to all the college students that were there, several hundred, uh, we decided to have a lay section where anybody post-college, including my retired parents, who I flew home to Ohio over Christmas and we drove back in their car uh, and they went to the conference. I was thrilled not being absolutely sure where my dad was spiritually and mom a little bit too. And so they sat in on the pre-conference staff meeting. There were about 40 of the staff and other volunteers that were coming in to run the conference. And John Fitz, the conference director, stood up to uh, brief the staff, make sure everybody had their assignments and to do things. He's in the middle of a sentence and Joe Webb, the area director who's about the same age, stands up and interrupts him and takes over and starts correcting him. You talk about an awkward moment. And to the Spirit of God's credit, Joe got about four or five sentences into this awful thing he was doing and just stopped and stared at his feet for about two minutes. And then he walked over to John Fitz in front of all of us, and my parents are sitting in the back. And he said, John, will you please forgive me? I gave you this conference to run. You were doing a wonderful job. I don't really have a problem I don't with anything you're doing. I will serve you in the smallest way uh, to the biggest way. You just tell me what I'm supposed to do this week. And then he turned to all of us and asked our forgiveness. That's not the end of the story. My dad, who, when he retired, was president of a 10,000-member labor union, had been for years, taking trains and then airplanes to D.C. to uh, lobby Congress was the only way the letter carriers could get uh, a raise. He'd been around leaders. My dad came to me the next morning and he said, David, I have never in all my life seen a leader humble himself after he blew it like Joe Webb did yesterday. And if that's what the gospel is about, then maybe God can forgive me too. And last night I accepted his forgiveness. Because that's what it means to be an image bearer on the other side of the cross. And my mom saw my wonderful dad and wonderful husband become more tender and open towards her the last 20 years of his life than he'd ever been able to be before that because of Jesus. Jesus. And my dad and I had such wonderful conversations about Jesus, including on his deathbed, though I didn't know he was going to die that night. Brothers and sisters, this treasure we have in earthen vessels. This is the humility that we have to lead out of our weakness, not just our strength. And and UPC is postured in weakness in a way that some of us don't like. I mean, none of us like it. We'd always rather feel stronger. But we may be closer to real strength than we've ever been as a church. My friend and older brother Steve Brown used to always end sermons, you think about that. (laughs) So I'll borrow it, you think about that.